Aloha and welcome to Elevating Motherhood. I'm so glad you're here. I'm your host, Lori Beth Aldridge. I've taken my passion for conversation, perspective, and supporting moms and turned it into a podcast. My goal is to talk openly about motherhood, offer new ideas, and help moms find their confidence in this busy and sometimes overwhelming world we live in. We're going to dive deep, open up, and elevate motherhood. Thanks for being here with me. Let's get started. Elevating Motherhood is coming to life over on Patreon. I'm super stoked to let you know I will be over there in the Patreon space in our moms group community over there connecting with you and other incredible moms. It is such a great space where we can have deep dive conversations about today's topic and every other topic discussed here on the show and basically any topic that you want to talk about and you want to go deep and wide with other moms. Our Elevating Motherhood community is the space for you. I'll also be hosting virtual classes once a month for moms. April and May's classes are already up and evergreen. They're available for you to watch anytime. And you can also join me for June's creative writing workshop that just went live yesterday, June 25th, where we'll talk about the writing process, creative outlets and habits, and even how we can document special moments for and tell stories to our kids. Sign up by June 30th and be entered to win this month's drawing. Go check out the details at patreon.com forward slash elevating motherhood. That's patreon.com forward slash elevating motherhood. I will link to that in the show notes. I'm super stoked to be in this ad free off social media, no distraction space to connect with you and other moms. It has already been so refreshing and life-giving to be able to connect deeper with you all over there. I hope you will join us. I am so excited to get to know you better in that space. Our bodies are amazing and not just because they can grow and sustain babies, but because of how they work. This conversation with Greta Wyeth will leave you feeling very appreciative of all your body can do. One of Greta's many missions is to help women educate themselves about their bodies so that they can clearly communicate and get the help that they need. She goes about this in a really interesting way. I didn't feel like I was being lectured to at all during this conversation about what my body can do, but instead I felt awakened to mind-blowing ways my body works and communicates. I actually left this conversation wanting to know more about my body and muscles and movement and fascia, not out of obligation, but out of pure curiosity and empowerment. Fascia is such a buzzword right now and for great reasons. Greta shares with us what it is, what it does, what it looks like, and shares recent discoveries about fascia's role in the body. But first, she walks us through self-education, our physical body, muscle function, re-educating our pelvic floor, movement in, in things like Pilates, and helps us understand more about ourselves. So by the time we cover fascia in the conversation, it all just clicks. 
Greta Wyeth is a nationally certified and STOT certified Pilates teacher who is rooted in science and dedicated to the inner relatedness of form and function in the human body. She believes that knowledge of your own body, along with how and why it moves, can inform and inspire healthy movement patterns. Greta teaches her clients how to find effective movement patterns and the muscle activation that promotes strength, balance, and alignment. Having worked with NFL and MSL athletes and being a lead referral by Stutter Health and Kaiser Permanente OBGYNs, Greta helps clients become their own best advocates. Greta is the founder of Still Point Movement, an education specialist, course creator, and mom of two. Without further ado, let's welcome the incredibly eye-opening Greta Wyeth to the show. Aloha, Greta. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Oh, I'm excited to talk with you. You have some very mom-specific interests that I'd love to tap into and talk more about. But before we talk about those topics, I'd love for my audience to get to know you more in your own words. Okay. Um, well, my name is Greta Wyatt. I'm uh, from California. I uh, was born and raised here in California, and I'm actually a fifth generation Californian, which I'm wow. very proud of. I know. <laughs> I have um, two children, both boys, and they are teenagers now. And um, when my oldest son was about two years old, um, I... I had an injury. I picked him up kind of weird and I hurt my back and I kind of just dealt with that for a while. And, um, and then I had my second son. Oh, I should say my first son was a C-section. Um, I had my second son as a VBAC and, um, which is a vaginal birth after a cesarean. And, um, and after him, I, I continued to every once in a while kind of throw out my back and um, and then during during a, a an accident, kind of an injury, I actually ruptured a disc in my back. <gasps> I had a huge injury, and um, and from then I I did tons of rehab. I recovered, and through that I discovered Pilates. And from Pilates and from my background, I should say that I have a, a master's degree in evolutionary biology. And I taught for years and years at both uh, Sacramento State University here in California and uh, some community colleges in the area. And after my injury and after my accident, I stopped teaching. I devoted myself to Pilates and I worked hard to educate myself about what had happened to my body. And from there my Pilates practice sort of blossomed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so now I have a question. Yeah. Um, what, what was that moment like where you stopped teaching and devoted your time and attention to Pilates? Like that's kind of a, that's kind of a big turn in life in the road. Yeah. It was actually fairly fluid. It was, okay. it was, it was not kind of this moment when I made the decision, it was, a point at which I just could no longer do what I was doing before. Um, and I, I knew I had to turn inward and focus on my body. And I knew I had to be there for my children in a way that I wasn't able to because my body was so hurt. Mm -hmm. And so I needed to 
try and find a way, try and find a path back to this place where I could be the person that I wanted to be with my kids and just in my life. And Pilates really helps me with that. Um, and also just my own research and my own self-education about my body um, really helps me with that. Mm-hmm. Self-education about your body. That is what we are here for, Ooh. for sure. Gosh, now I have like even more questions. It's <laughs> a good thing we're doing an interview. Um, were you in chronic pain then? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I, I ruptured a disc and then the fluid inside the disc leaked down out of the mm. spine, out of the disc and fused itself onto my sciatic nerve. So I was paralyzed. My leg was paralyzed for nine months. And then after that nine months, I started to regain motion. And then I went to physical therapy for an additional, I think about nine to 12 months. Mm. And then I started Pilates. <laughs> yeah, wow. That's really intense. And I have to say being pregnant again reminds me of the sheer strength it takes to mother with a chronic underlying something or other. I won't say that like pregnancy is an underlying thing, but like I have constant nausea, like it's ever present, just always in my throat at this stage and oh. in, in all of this. And it, it lasted in some of my other pregnancies too. And I try and I try to manage it and do all the things. But I forget the strength and patience it takes to show up and mother when you have something chronic and pressing like that in your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that not only do women have this strength, but I think it's really important for communities to acknowledge that strength. And then that kind of feedback leads to, you know, women feeling cared for, women feeling seen, um, women feeling supported. And then from there, we get to kind of find our path, our education to find that strength and be there. Mm-hmm. And I think during those hard moments, it really helps for people to say like, well, wow, you're really handling this with grace, or Absolutely. can I help you during this time? Or like, I see how it is that you're showing up anyway, despite all of this. And if we don't kind of have that feedback loop, that external feedback loop, sometimes it's hard to have that internal feedback loop when the only one you're getting is kind of like, this is really hard and I'm not sure there's anything else. So yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, since we're talking about Pilates, I'm kind of curious. Um, do you think Pilates is more beneficial than other forms of exercise for women and moms in particular? So one thing, so I think movement heals any kind of movement. I think any kind of movement is important to maintain. It's healing. It's supportive for the body. It doesn't necessarily have to be the specific Pilates exercises laid out by Joseph Pilates originally. It doesn't have to be that that sort of um, um, classical form of Pilates. But I do think that Pilates in general was shaped by someone who was working with injured bodies and that that support that Pilates gives you, the, the reformer, the different apparatus, um, I think in, in doing it in a way that's really supportive and moving your body in a way that really supports your injuries or your um, the specific way that your body moves, the engagements that your body is kind of predisposed to, um, I think that Pilates is really good at supporting that kind of thing. 
And so I think that a lot of people have found success in Pilates when other exercises weren't appropriate or supportive for them. Hmm. I do think the injury part is very interesting because my best friend is a Pilates instructor as well. And, you know, just in talking with her about Pilates and who shows up for Pilates, it's like all over the map. And it is people who have very specific injuries. Some people come because it's trendy, you know, and they feel like it's like the high end exercise to do. Some people want the Pilates body that like long and lean bodies. Some people approach it for weight loss. Some people approach it for strength. Um, And then it's like every age you will see all ages in a Pilates class. I mean, just today, this morning, I worked with a woman who is 24. She actually works for uh, Cirque du Soleil and she's coming to me for a uh, uh, pelvic floor or pelvic stability. Her pelvis keeps kind of slipping out of joint or slipping and moving through her SI joint. And she's coming to me to help find stability. Although I have to be very careful because this is her profession mm-hmm. and so I can't shorten her muscles. She needs to be able to find that stretch and mobility. So I've been working with her on actually creating more dense uh, fascia to be able to support her bones and her structure where I'm not specifically trying to, you know, create bulk in her muscles. Whereas the two, two short hours later, Mm -hmm. I'm working with a woman who's 83 is recovering from a back surgery. She's had hip replacements, breast cancer, wrist replacements, I mean, and she has a totally different ability to move, but in both cases, trying to support proper alignment and and healthy movement patterns in both of them is, is so important. And that's kind of what I use Pilates for. Mm -hmm. I love that. It's so unique and so flexible, but I'm, (laughs) you know, with everybody, um, But I also think that because of its varied uses and the way that it's show the the way that it shows in people's bodies and how people show up and the one-on-one versus group classes and all the things, all the different reasons people come, I think that Pilates ends up having a really strange reputation in communities. Like it's it's like a word that we know, like yoga or something like that. But then unless you're actually doing it, I don't think it's it makes much sense to people. Like I think some people see it as like really, really hard. Mm. We're told by some people that Pilates is really hard or that you have to have all this super expensive equipment like Cadillacs and things like that. But then there's Mm. also matte Pilates or some people will be like, I don't know. Good luck with that. If you like hundreds, I don't know if everyone's familiar with Pilates (laughs) hundreds, but look that up if you're not. (laughs) It's Or some people feel like it's too expensive or, even the opposite of those things that it's too easy because you're like barely moving your body, it seems like, and maybe you're not working like hard enough with all these micro movements. So I'd really love to invite you to help us understand what Pilates really is and kind of, and maybe what it really isn't, you know, and dispel some of these myths and this, and kind of bust through this strange reputation it has. Sure. I, I totally agree with you. Pilates does have kind of a, um, well, it's, it's almost difficult to define. And in fact, within the Pilates community, there's a lot of discussion about what exactly is Pilates versus what it isn't. Um, Some people will tell you that Pilates is just 
classical Pilates. It's these particular exercises that were designed by Joseph Pilates. They're either on the mat or some of the equipment. And um, it's just that. Other people will tell you that, well, since Joseph Pilates described and invented his, you know, positions and motions and, and movements, um, we've learned a lot about uh, the physical body and about how what's appropriate for different types of physical bodies. Um, and so contemporary Pilates has sort of a different viewpoint on what Pilates is and what's incorporated. But essentially, I think what it all comes down to is that Pilates is a series of movements that are controlled and precise. And when movements are controlled and precise, you are trying to access a different set of muscles. So if you contrast Pilates to something like CrossFit, CrossFit uses these big mover muscles, um, muscles like the quads, the, the glutes, the biceps, and those muscles are something called fast twitch. They, um, they turn on, they turn off, they're, um, uh, they've got a lot of force behind them, and usually they're very large muscles. Pilates really tries to access a different type of muscle, a muscle called a slow twitch muscle. They have a lot more mitochondria. They're able to, instead of turning off and turning on, they kind of almost have more of a dimmer switch style of engagement. And that dimmer switch can be pumped up or we can just put it on a little bit of a whisper. These particular slow twitch style muscles are usually stabilizers. And so a lot of the challenge in Pilates is to use the correct alignment and stabilize your body so that you can use those controlled movements to find challenge. So I think that, yeah, Pilates has a lot to do with stability and control. Mm -hmm. So interesting. I mean, no wonder CrossFit makes so much more sense to most of us because you, you literally listed off muscles that we would kind of like learn in school you know, and that we understand. And when you're thinking about health and fitness, a lot of people be like, yeah, working on my quads, my glutes, you know, my hamstrings, we know all those. But then if you really got into the the smaller muscle groups, is that fair to even call it that? Well, I mean, some of the muscles aren't technically small, but certainly they're, they're not used in the same way as those muscles. Mm -hmm. There's, there's muscles that are meant for moving mm -hmm. and there's muscles, well, I don't want to create such a huge division because a lot of muscles play, you know, both roles of stabilizing and moving, mm -hmm. but really those stabilizer muscles are capable of contraction in a different way. And, um, one muscle that Pilates uses a lot, Pilates talks about the powerhouse or the core. Everybody's heard the term core. We don't really know what that means, but Pilates uses the term core and powerhouse to refer to a muscle called the transverse abdominis, mm -hmm. which is actually a muscle that's deep within the core, not your six pack, not your obliques, but a muscle that's underneath it. And, and that's actually the muscle that provides stability along with your diaphragm, your pelvic floor, and some of the muscles in your back that provides stability to your torso and actually keeps your spine stacked in place. Mm -hmm. So um, some of those stabilizer muscles are more important to movement than, than some of those bigger muscles. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Transverse abdominus. Yeah. <laughs> I have heard that term quite a few times as a person who had three back-to-back 
pregnancies, who <laughs> whose best friend is a Pilates instructor, who's you know had pel- pelvic floor rehab and all the all these things. That is a a word I've heard a, a lot, and it's so interesting how it is um, connected to the pelvic floor and has to do with pelvic floor health. But before we get into pelvic floor health more mitochondria in those muscles. What? Yeah. Okay. So this, this, this may, may be a little off-putting, but you can kind of think of it a little bit like, like in a turkey, there's like the white meat Oh yeah. and the dark meat. Yeah. So dark meat is dark because there's more mitochondria in the cells of, of that meat. I had and, no idea. <laughs> so they're able to process um, they're able to burn sugar and process um, and metabolize in a different way because there's more of them. So those muscles won't build up lactic acid as quickly. So no, you probably won't get sore after you work those stabilizer muscles, those slow twitch, uh, I don't like the term, but dark meat much muscles because because there's more mitochondria in them. And so they will burn energy in a different way. You won't build up lactic acid. You won't feel sore. But that doesn't mean that you didn't work those muscles. Wow. So interesting. And, you know, I do. I know that we do have a couple of vegan listeners, probably more than a couple, but also lots of Weston A. Price folks, too. So we're, you know, very, we're all over that. We accept everyone's eating styles, but that is actually a very clear example. Had no idea. We'll never, ever think of it the same way again. <laughs> Sorry. I will be thinking of you on Thanksgiving Day, one, because it's my due date, and two, because I'll be like, no kidding. Do you guys know something about this? <laughs> Here is a story you can tell at the Thanksgiving table. Oh, it's going to be awesome. It's going to yeah. be awesome. Okay, well, pelvic floor health, you help re-educate moms about their pelvic floor health after childbirth. And I, I am attracted to this term, re-educate. I'm curious what that means to you and then how you go about doing this. Well, I think I use the term re-educate in a couple of different ways. One, I don't like the term restore because I don't know that there's anything to restore. I don't think that that's an appropriate thing to say to a new mom in any way. (laughs) And I also think that, um, there's, there's kind of your, your, your body's on a journey. You're never going to take your body and send it back to something that happened before. That's just not how life works. That's right. That's and right. So I want the pelvic floor to be just like any other muscle in your body in that that muscle can become weak or it can become strong. You can pay attention to it. You can work it. You can move it. Or you can lose strength. You can use it in, an, in, the, in the wrong way. You can, you can squeeze it and tighten it and never release it. And that also will cause problems. Mm-hmm. And so I want the, the term re-educate to kind of refer to the fact that you're, you're, you're living with your body, you're moving with your body, and your body should never go back to something that it was before. Um, You kind of can't after childbirth. You kind of can't. You can't go back. There's no going back after being a portal between two worlds and bringing life into the world. (laughs) Well, and I think that the idea of even trying to go back is some unobtainable goal that I I don't think is a healthy thing for women. Um, The other reason why I say re-educate is because after a trauma like childbirth, and I'm not saying that childbirth is... Uh, uh, 
necessarily a traumatic event. I'm talking about more like a medical trauma, as in your muscles may tear, your skin may tear, your fascia is going through a major event. And so that medical trauma that's happened in your pelvic floor um, needs to be rehabbed. It needs to be able to, your brain needs to be able to connect to those muscles again. You need to be able to engage those muscles at will. And so being able to re-educate or teach your brain how to access those muscles is something that I feel um, that I feel is important. Yeah. Um, the brain accessing those muscles. Isn't yeah. that interesting? Because I don't think that a lot of us think of it that way, that it's about your brain accessing those muscles instead of just go, go gadget muscles, you know? Right. No, I think that, and maybe that's another thing that, that Pilates has taught me is that we actually have a lot of motor control over our muscles. We can tell one bicep to turn on, but not the other bicep. We can tell one inner thigh to turn on and tell the other one to turn off. And so we should be able to have a little bit more control over the muscles and the muscle engagement in the pelvic floor. One struggle that many women have, especially after birth, is actually not being able to find those muscles. Right. And, and people feel, especially women, feel like, oh, no, never. I'm never going to be able to find them again. I've lost it. And, and that's that. And, and that's just not the case. It's just a matter of working. It's a matter of doing the correct exercises. It's a matter of refinding those muscles and really supporting and being kind to your pelvis until you can begin to make those connections again. Mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> Be kind to that area and yourself. <laughs> yes, I love that. Well, do you find that most moms know about their pelvic floor health needs? I think that most moms are intuitively aware of yeah. their pelvic floor. I think that um, when you have... I mean, really any part of your body where you're feeling pain or you're, you're feeling weak or you're feeling like it's not moving well, I think that there's sort of an underlying um, discomfort mm -hmm. or, or it may even come out in other ways. You may not be aware that it's necessarily your pelvic floor, but all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're just so much more tired than you were before and you can't go for hikes and what's wrong with me, that kind of thing. So I think that intuitively women do feel that, that um, or women know about their pelvic floor health needs. I think that women tend to not be able to communicate them. Mm -hmm. um, Fair enough. I, yeah, I think that um, when communicating our pelvic floor health needs, sometimes we need to be able to use terms that our healthcare providers use in order to be able to um, talk at the same level or, or talk so that another person understands us. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that the clinicians and um, healthcare providers go to a great deal of effort to try and um, communicate with people about their healthcare needs, but I think there needs to be a reciprocal kind of um, effort. And I'm, and I, I don't mean the, the type of effort of, I mean, women already do this where they're trying to get help and they're trying to get help and they're trying to get help and they're not understood. 
Um, and I think that if women had the ability to use the same language, mm-hmm. they would be better understood. And I, and I have an example of this, actually, my very best friend, she, um, she had a back injury and it was during this, this, this whole lockdown and she has five kids and, um, yes, sixth one on the way. And, um, she's yes. <laughs> and she had her back was so, so painful. And um, this was before she got pregnant with her sixth, uh, mm-hmm. child. um, it was a girl. <laughs> she has four boys. <laughs> and anyway, um, so she went to her doctor and she said, Oh, my back hurts so much. When I wake up, it hurts. It hurts to do this particular type of movement. Uh, I'm just in so much pain. And her doctor didn't really address her pain, didn't really give her um, any kind of medication to address her pain. Her doctor simply said, well, you know, if you could lose weight, that would be the solution because that's the problem. And, And I was appalled. I know I'm having like a visceral reaction and I'm sure a bunch of my listeners are too. Like if they're driving and they're like, <laughs> I'm sorry, what? <laughs> no, that was my reaction too. It was where I was sitting down, I was in my Pilates studio and I was like, Oh, excuse me. What did he say? <laughs> Hold on. So we had this very long conversation. First, it was a little bit of venting, which is totally appropriate. Then there was this um, part of the conversation where I I said, well, what did you say? What what were the the words? What were the emotions? What did you convey to this this doctor? And, And she told me and I said, well, how about this? How about you use a different language? How about you say something about my lumbar spine hurts, when I flex and rotate, um, my, um, when I extend my lumbar spine, I get a pain down my sciatic nerve. And I gave her some terms to, Mm -hmm. to describe her pain in a way that her doctor understood. And then she went back to the same guy she used those same words. I know. I don't think I would have, but I think she was. She that was her family doctor. She went back to the mm-hmm. same guy, used the same words, and she actually got the help that she needed. Mm-hmm. And so I, from that experience, decided that find finding a way for women to learn about the structure and function of their, their pelvic floor mm-hmm. would really help them to be able to advocate for themselves mm-hmm. um, in 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 something like that kind of a setting and so mm-hmm. that became kind of my my reason <laughs> it's a very good reason and i'm sure your best friend really appreciates that my gosh and so many of us can relate to moments like that where, you know, we just lived in, live in such a rushed society. The doctors are rushed. We're rushed by the time we actually show up oftentimes as moms, because things have gotten intolerable, right. you know, or we don't like the moodiness that the chronic underlying pressure of whatever it is we're experiencing is causing. And we just, we're, we're desperate. And then by the time you get there and you're like, I don't know how to describe this. Like just the other day I had inflammation of the sternum. Mm. from from all the loveliness that is the first trimester yeah but I didn't know what it was and it's like in such a strange part of your body and and 
lucky for me, I have a, a healer, acupuncturist, Chinese herbalist friend who understood exactly what it was and understood like where I was in my life. And I, we didn't have to do this like big intro of like, Hey, I'm pregnant, which then like basically in, in like an allopathic setting would be like, well, now you can't take all these things, you know? And like, well, now you're like super limited in all this and well, um, and then they would probably attribute that would be like, well, that's because you're pregnant. Yeah. And you know, that's yours. Right. mm -hmm. Even I wondered that, you know, at some point I was like, is this just like a, is it because my boobs are getting bigger and it's like pulling on my chest muscles or something? Yeah. But I, I was able to talk with someone who understood, but it definitely um, was more like a trusted friend kind of situation than that. So I do understand that that is a very one-on-one relationship and I was able to resolve that issue very quickly thanks the Lord. But let's say she was off island when all of this stuff goes on. And that's a real possibility. Then we need these kind of terms to show up and, and, and talk about things. And then when it comes to pelvic floor health specifically, mm-hmm. a lot of times what we're doing is like, oh, I pee when I sneeze and this is super embarrassing. Or even I've got some leakage that I'm like, don't want to tell you about, but I also have to deal with. And, and I don't know what to do. And then we kind of like shut down because it is mortifying for many of us to say out loud, I've, I've got some leakage. Right. Well, oh, don't even get me started on those diaper commercials that I see that feature women in their like mid thirties who are, you know, I mean, that is so just the wrong message to send. I don't watch a lot of TV. I miss these commercials. I'm writing that down to go look it up after. (laughs) Well, I mean, just to reassure your viewers, um, one third of all women have urinary leakage after childbirth and one tenth of all women have fecal leakage Mm -hmm. after childbirth. Um, It's incredibly common. And for those women who have symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction, like urinary leakage, that um, they they also present with other kinds of of, symptoms. issues, for example, of diastasis. And for all of those conditions, you can do exercises to support that the the pelvic floor and other structures of the abdominal sort of cavity to help regain functionality. I'm not going to say that you're going to suddenly fix yourself because if you have a diastasis that's, you know, over about two and a half centimeters, it's very unlikely that it will grow back together. But you can rebuild functionality in your core Mm -hmm. so that that diastasis doesn't affect you and affect the structure of your body or the, the, the efficacy of movement in your body. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you for saying that rebuilding functionality is doable. It is doable. It is doable. Absolutely. And women should feel empowered to do that. And women should feel like they have the language to ask for that if they need Mm -hmm. it. Um, are those the most common pelvic floor health issues that cross your path? Um, let's see. Well, so I work in a, in a rehab setting. So a lot of what um, crosses my path is uh, pelvic instability. I see a lot of women with SI joint instability. Mm-hmm. Um, I do see a lot of women with uh, some form of incontinence. And there's kind of two different types of incontinence. There's stress urinary incontinence, which is kind of exactly what you said. When I sneeze, when I jump on a trampoline, when I run, 
Um, and then there's urge urinary incontinence, which is a different kind of incontinence that occurs when um, uh, sort of the urge to go to the bathroom is is not appropriately conveyed. So for example, mm. you're, you don't have to go, you don't have to go, you don't have to go. And then all of a sudden, right then, oh my God, I have to pee right now. Mm-hmm. That's something like urge urinary incontinence. And both of those are um, supported and can be, can be helped. Um, and the symptoms can be alleviated by working the pelvic floor, by doing exercises for the pelvic floor. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you wish more moms understood about their pelvic floor? Oh, gosh. So one thing I think that's really complex that I think a lot of people don't understand is that the pelvic floor isn't just um, supporting your bladder. And it's not just there for sexual function. Oh, my God. Total aside, but a client brought to me the other day Uh, an advertisement that she received in the mail. This is a complete aside from your question, but it had, it was an advertisement from a Medi spa and they talked about uh, uh, laser treatments for the vagina to make it lifted and tightened for better pleasure for you and your partner. I was like appalled, but regardless that is not necessarily the, the most important function of the pelvic floor. The pelvic floor is the base of your abdominal cavity. Mm-hmm. Your abdominal cavity has something called interabdominal pressure. And that pressure is basically like if you think like a shoebox with a water balloon inside. And if you press in on all sides of that shoebox, There's going to be a point where you can't press in any further because that water balloon is under pressure. The water Mm -hmm. is pushing out at the same pressure that you're pushing in on this all six sides of the shoebox. And then it creates kind of like almost a brick, a hard structure that we call a pseudo hydrostatic skeleton, which basically means it's a hard structure that is created by water pressure inside of your body. And that Mm. pseudo hydrostatic skeleton in your core actually supports your spine. So there's been studies that have shown that women who have either pelvic floor dysfunction or cesarean sections are at a higher risk of suffering um, disc herniation in their spine. No kidding. Yeah, and in part, the reason is because you're taking that that nice solid brick and you're creating a weak spot in it. And so all of a sudden, if you squeeze the six sides of that box and there's a, let's say you have a diastasis, there's a weak spot at the front. Well, that water balloon is going to come out the, the weak mm-hmm. spot. Or even if it doesn't come out, that box is going to be a little less sturdy than it was mm-hmm. before. Hmm. That slippage, that less sturdiness, um, can lead to spine injuries. It can lead to um, misalignments in the pelvis and spine. And that affects your movement and your health and your well-being for a, a long time. A so, lot and for a long time, yes. What I would really hope that women would understand is that the pelvic floor isn't just something that can be ignored. It's not yeah. a, a place in your body that you can just be like, oh, well, 
I'll just wear diapers, no big deal, whatever. You really need to take care of your bodies, be kind to yourself and and do the work that you need to keep yourself healthy for a long time. Mm-hmm. One thing I, only, I always say to my clients that come into the studio is, um, where do you see yourself in 20 years? Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I have, like I said, I have a 20, 24 year old client. She's like, oh, I'm going to be 44 and I'm going to have babies and, you know, that's, the, and I'm going to be mobile. But, you know, I asked my 65 year old client, where do you see yourself in 20 years? Do you see yourself in a walker? Do you see yourself in a wheelchair? Do you see yourself mobile walking around? Mm-hmm. How do you view yourself? And then whatever that image is that you have of yourself, do that, do a favor to your future self and start working on it now. Mm-hmm. It's not going to come if you're like, oh my God, I have five years to make myself more mobile again. And you're 80 and you're like, oh, I'm supposed to be mobile at 85. Wait a minute. How do mm-hmm. I get back? <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. And you're talking to a bunch of moms. We know how quickly time flies. Yes. You just had your baby and he's 15. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. And I almost want to be like, okay, everyone who now knows which side of their shoebox is kind of loosey goosey, raise your hand. Right. You know, like I know I'm like, hmm, the shoebox example was brilliant because I was like, oh yeah, that makes so much sense. And I think I can identify which sides of my shoebox could use a little a little more attention. And then when you apply that then to the 20 year mark down the road, okay, I can, I already know that like 20 years from now, Lori Beth is like, honey, girlfriend, sister, child, you were only 40. I know you thought it was so old, but you were not. And you should have like worked on your shoebox. <laughs> right, right. Well, I like the shoebox too, because I like to think of my shoebox now, 43. Oh, yes. And then I like to think of my shoebox at 63. And I want to say, hey, I have the same shoebox now that I did before, but I need yeah. to make sure that I still do. So mm-hmm. yes. Okay. Shoebox goals. Got it. We've got it. That's awesome. <laughs> that term, shoebox goal. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, out of curiosity, you spend time in Canada, correct? Yeah, so I did my graduate degree in Canada at University of British Columbia. Yeah. Um, and my husband is also Canadian. Oh, right on. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really enjoy Canadians. Really enjoyed them. I worked for Canadians for almost 10 years. It's really oh. fun. Really fun. Um, I'm wondering, were you, I guess maybe you wouldn't have known back then because maybe you didn't get into your pelvic floor health stuff until after, but do you see a difference in how pelvic floor health is viewed in Canada versus the U.S.? Um, I, so I have to admit, I was not in my pelvic floor health stage at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also had university healthcare. So oh, yes. it's very similar to the type of university healthcare that I had here in the United States. But I will say this, um, my, my father and um, my aunt and a lot of my cousins are from Europe. And um, in the Netherlands, which is where my family is from, there is very good healthcare system. Um, one of my best friends is also from, or lives, I guess I should say, lives in France. And she, after her second child, got three at-home visits with a pelvic floor physical therapist who helped her to find exercises that worked for her at her home when her baby was ba- was tiny. Um, she also got a lot more attention and help with her own movement issues. They they told her immediately, get up, move around, start walking, work on your pelvic floor health. 
And um, I actually have some statistics. In 2013, the Journal of, let me just look this up really quickly. Mm -hmm. I have it right here. Uh, the Institute of Medicine stated that American women and their infants were at a health disadvantage compared to all other countries of comparable wealth. And the majority of hospital stays, which were 48 to 96 hours, were focused on nursing and physical care. And the ongoing pelvic health of new mothers was not addressed or considered. Yeah. So I think that as Americans, we know what kind of healthcare system we have. That's a super big topic. I don't know that it's going to be changed anytime <laughs> soon, but at least we have the opportunities to pursue our own education. Yeah. So that again, when we educate ourselves, we can be better health advocates for ourselves in whatever healthcare we we have. <laughs> mm -hmm. The differences are obvious. Change um, is needed and understood and all of that. But I do appreciate not just waiting around for that change, um, yeah. but, you know, taking a little bit more sort of, um, yeah, health advocacy. It's, it's mm -hmm. interesting. I think that um, the idea of advocacy is, is um, kind of a challenging one. I think that the healthcare industry kind of embraced the idea of advocacy. And so mm -hmm. in the 1970s, they had something called a health advocate. And you can, when you are in a hospital, you, um, uh, you, you get, you are, you are uh, in, um, assigned a, a health advocate um, so that you're, especially with like a large teaching hospital, your needs, um, which may be in competition with the needs of a medical school, your needs are met within that system. And so in the 1970s, the healthcare industry kind of recognized the need for an advocate. But, um, and then we also have, you know, different types of specific advocacy, like kind of the Aaron Brockovich style, like this is one particular problem, let's advocate for a solution to this you know, the American Cancer Society or Leukemia Lymphoma Society or something. Um, but I think that we're missing that individualized advocacy and we mm -hmm. can do that ourselves. Do you want to hear a, an interesting way that I'm seeing this play out and also fade out? Hmm. This notion of health advocate, having a health advocate, so interesting. That would be the 1970s. Okay, keeping that in mind, mm -hmm. I have a friend whose mom was a nurse. And recently she needed some information and she asked her mom about it. And her mom said, well, there should be like a health advocate mm -hmm. at the hospital. So if you think about the fact that a friend's mom would have been a, like a nurse during that time when this was a thing, and I don't know if she's retired now or not, but like timing wise, she would have been aware of that. And then it's not something that I'm necessarily aware of mm. as like a, a child of that generation as someone who was born in 1980. It's not like something that I walk into a hospital. And it's just like known that, that the health advocates are there. But when she, when her mom said, well, this should be a thing. And then you seek out that health advocate at the hospital. It's not necessarily a thing. So I'm seeing it and seeing how it's also like fading out. Right. Well, it's, it's, it's very interesting how, I mean, this, the healthcare industry is, is a very complex, large machine. Mm -hmm. I think for a long time and still, I think that um, 
the knowledge and the the um, the the access is uh, is controlled. And I think that as women, particularly, start to educate themselves about their own bodies and their own needs, and and even start to use, like I said, the language of a doctor, mm-hmm. then maybe that kind of advocacy will come back. We'll we'll resurface yeah. in, so, in in maybe a different form, but yes, mm-hmm. yeah. So good. We're like in the transition and some of us aren't even aware of the transition. And I do appreciate the women educating themselves big time. And I think that the message I want to tag onto the end of that sentiment is that it is doable. You can read these things. You can read these articles. You can with friends, you know, other mom friends, you can read like everything from blog articles to, to scientific studies. You you can, it's accessible. It's open to the public. It's not something that's only reserved for, for doctors in medical school um, or current practitioners. This information is out there and you can, you know, start with the abstracts and educate yourself from there. You really, 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 truly can. Absolutely. I mean, 100, like I am so, so for that. In, in fact, that's actually so just a little self plug here, but I created a, a pelvic floor health and movement video, which is available on my website, stillpointmovement.com. It's a 35 minute video. The first um, 15 minutes or so are, is a, basically an anatomy and physiology lesson. Amazing. But, what, what are the names of the muscles in your pelvic floor? How do they work? What, what are the different, like we talked about the abdominals and the different levels and the different muscles in the abdominals. We have the same thing in our pelvic floor. How, how does that work? What does it mean when you do Kegels? Which muscles are you working? Are those the muscles that are actually going to help to stabilize that shoebox for you or not? <laughs> right. And then moving on from there, I talk a lot about um, common pelvic floor dysfunctions, including urinary incontinence, diastasis recti, um, a lot of different issues that moms are facing and how to, what, it, what, it, what is it, what happens and um, what that means for your bodies. And then the last 10 minutes of the video is um, 12 exercises that you can do um, every day. They're very gentle exercises, but doing them accurately with good uh, body alignment will really help you find and access your pelvic floor. And And this video that I created is, is meant to help women, not just women who are on their own or women who are trying to begin this process, but women who are working with a PT or working in Pilates or working with some sort of healthcare provider that they can then enter into that relationship with that provider in a a more equal way, in a Mm -hmm. way that they can advocate for themselves. And so I think that video for purpose. I love that. 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 I will link to that in the show notes for sure, because we need these resources. It's the time of resources and kind of organizing the information in ways that translate as doable and easy to understand, even complex ideas. We can do this. Absolutely. We are doing it. And I so appreciate that you put that together because the education that we're getting is Kegels, 
whatever that means. And then laser treatment for pleasure. I mean, we really need to move way beyond those things and, and have these resources and refer to them and know that we are empowering ourselves by educating ourselves about our own body. Mm. So good. You're just such a wealth of information. And the, the other thing that you focus on and talk about is, is <laughs> this is going to be good. And we say it differently. Um, fascia, fascia. Yeah. <laughs> Talk with us about that. Like what is fascia and where is it in our bodies? What does it look like? Why should we know about it? So fascia is, is basically kind of your soft skeleton. It's um, a network of uh, fibers within the body that extends from the surface of the skin all the way into the nucleus of the cell. It's mobile it's adaptable, it's fractal, it's irregular, and it kind of constitutes the basic structural architecture of the human body. It's a fascinating, amazing uh, structure that we really had no idea that existed at all. In fact, the, the definition of uh, fascia is still being sort of debated in September 2015, they what? finally, the fourth International Fascia Research Congress finally decided on a, a scientific definition of it. And part of the reason that we didn't know that this was such a complex, adaptable, important structure in the body was because we were looking at cadavers. We were looking at bodies that were not alive. And... Um, so when we would cut into um, a body, we would look at the fascia and we would say, oh, this looks like packing material. It's, you know, it's just oh. webby. It's like when you pull the skin off of a chicken, you know, and you're looking at that spider webby stuff and going, what is this? Let's just get rid of it. And in fact, it's not actually, um, it's, it, it is kind of a packing material. It, it does play that role. It's structural. It separates and connects structures within the body. It also plays a role in force transmission, uh, nerve communication, something called mechanotransduction, which is where we get input from the outside world and our cells have to respond to that input. Um, and transfer of nutrients and hydration within the body. I mean, it does everything. It does everything. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it's a big deal at all. <laughs> Gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. All of the things, all the things. Oh my gosh. I had, I had no idea. I mean, I've heard people talk about the chicken comparison grosses yeah. out every time. Sorry. Uh, the turkey <laughs> stuff doesn't gross me out. This does. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Pregnancy. <laughs> okay. So interesting. It just, man, why do you think it's been ignored for so long? Or do you feel like it's been ignored or, or is it something I that we just didn't know about because I feel like the only things I really learned about in school, there was no, there was no fascia man. There was like a skeleton or you saw the muscle pictures or the nerve pictures, but no fascia pictures. And so we understand things like bones, muscles, organs, and fat, but not necessarily this. Right. Well, I think in part because we didn't really know how important it was. Um, we, we thought that it really was just fibers. So fascia is made up mostly of collagen fibers. Oh. And, um, mm. and yeah, and, and it has some cells in it. Those cells are called fibroblasts and they secrete those same collagen fibers. 
And um, we didn't know that fascia also has nerve endings in it. And, and those nerve endings can help to um, uh, transmit um, impulses from the brain. They sometimes relay pain impulses. We didn't know that before. And so sometimes um, um, constrictions in your fascia can, can, can be perceived as pain. Hmm. Um, also in, in, in my work, just kind of anecdotally, um, I have found a lot of success in working with, uh, fascia in rheumatoid arthritic patients or clients. And so that's something where they're finding a lot of relief in, in, in doing this kind of, this kind of work. Um, but it's really interesting. It's really, it has to do with the way that nutrients and fluids are transported in the body and also the way that force is transmitted through the body. Because we, we like to think about the body as just these little pieces like the pelvic floor or the shoulder. But in fact, the body is just one continuous network and it's the fascia that makes it one continuous network. Mm-hmm. This is something I think all of us are going to have to spend some time wrapping our heads around. <laughs> you know, it's like we're trying to take this holistic approach and, you know, with life in general, yeah. you know, kind of marrying the physical, the mental, the emotional, the spiritual, the everyday, the future, the past, all this stuff. We're trying to like do this as a holistic thing, but then like, almost within those, then we have to like deconstruct it or reconstruct it or reeducate and, and, and figure out a way to see our body as one whole as well. Like hearing you talk about this, I'm like, wow, it seems like um, fascia would be really important during literally everything like childbirth. Absolutely. Well, so um, going back to pelvic floor uh, anatomy and physiology, there's three layers in the pelvic floor. The first layer is very structural to the vagina. That's where you do Kegels. There's some sphincteric muscles, which, which contract and close like a circle. Um, mm-hmm. The second layer of the, the pelvic floor is fascia. It's, it's, a, it's a fibrous network and it has something called the transperineal line, which extends from the bottom all the way up to the top. Uh, the third layer is where you have all of your musculature that helps to support the pelvis and spine. So it's that third layer that you're really looking to work. But in, in, um, in pregnancy and childbirth, the, 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 that second layer of fascia is really helping you to communicate all of that tensile work that your body is doing. So as your baby starts to get bigger and bigger and starts to, to become heavier and heavier, how are you going to hold it up? Well, your body actually in response to that changing weight of the baby and in response to the shifting of your organs within your body, your body actually will secrete and release more collagen in certain areas. So some parts of your body become more tonic, more tensile, able to support things. Other parts of your body will become more lax. The, the, the fibrous network will become less dense. And so you'll be able to stretch a little bit more in those areas. Also, your pelvis becomes more pliable. A lot of that um, elastin and reticulin, which is two other kinds of fibers, they respond to 
hormones in the body. And so those fibers change their structure and change how dense they are in certain areas, especially your pelvis, to allow for the mobility of the pelvis so that you can have a baby. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, your body is responding to, to internal and outside forces all the time. And this uh, fascia is become is being constructed and deconstructed and reconstructed with um, with every new sort of force and pressure and um, uh, environmental factor that you encounter. Wild. Yeah. Wild. It's amazing. <laughs> Just I love wild. It. And that kind of like structural change and difference and all of that kind of really puts things into perspective. The use of it before, you know, while you're pregnant um, the reasoning behind it for when you are birthing your baby, mm-hmm. but then also lots of grace and time and space for the changing of that after you've had the baby. Right. So in order to, a lot of people really interested in, you know, how do I change the structure of my fascia to, to support a particular type of movement, particularly my, my, um, my contortionist, um, Ariel gymnast right now. She's very interested in this. And um, I need to tell her that, you know, it takes six to 24 months of working in a particular way in order for the body to change the the fascia. So this kind of work doesn't happen overnight. It's not a change that we can, you know, see in 12 short weeks of going to some, some class. But it's incredibly important work because of how um, interrelated it is to every other function of the body. Mm-hmm. 24 months is two years of that 20 years. Yes. just want to point that out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of time. Oh, my gosh. That's really wild. Really wild. Wow. Well, I think that I was reading on your website that fascia relates to cell health. Yes. What on earth? Tell me more. One really interesting thing that they've discovered. So the 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 fascia kind of acts like like a spider web network over your body and it and it permeates through muscles. It actually covers bone. It it's there's a layer of fascia underneath your skin and all of this is kind of this this spider web that's sitting in like syrup. So thinking about the idea that these fibers are sitting in this kind of thick fluid, and that fluid can become thicker and um, and tacky, especially in places where um, you're you're doing a particular motion. Like for example, if you're on your phone or hunched over your computer, you're you feel like oh my muscles are getting tight on my back. I better roll it out. I better do a roller. And and that roller actually is not affecting your muscles. <laughs> it's affecting the fascia. And it's saying, okay, instead of getting tacky and sticky, all this fluid in here that has kind of proteins and sugars, we're going to put some water in. And all of these, they're called glycoproteins, are, um, yeah, they're going to get some of that water and make themselves all slippery like, like syrup should be or... Yeah, like like slippery, almost like soap. So we're actually creating more fluidity and more and more um, slipperiness in the fascia when we do that rolling, and and that actually is what's helping us to to move force through the body. So for example, move force. Fascia, 
Move. Move. Yeah. So you can think about the fascia kind of like this super highway. Yes, it's this spider web network that's sitting in like liquid jello. But also these spider webs are capable of transmitting nutrients across the body. So you can send things through this fluid network, but also it transmits force. So for example, let's say that you, you jump and you land on your feet. The force that comes, comes from the floor up into your feet needs to travel all the way up your legs because if it just stays in your ankle, um, it's going to break your ankle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that force needs to dissipate. It needs to travel all the way up your legs through your lower back. Maybe it travels up your lower back to the base of your skull. Maybe it goes out to the sides, your obliques carry some of it, and then it comes up to the front in your pectoralis. So we have these, um, people call them anatomy trains or slings, which are muscles that are really interconnected by the fascia that allow for force transmission through the body. I don't mm. know if that answered your question, but that's where I was going with it. <laughs> mm, it's good. It's, it's good. I guess, so oh, interesting. Oh. Cell health. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that spider web network that's all outside of the cells actually also exists inside of the cells. So what? it's called the cytoskeleton. So the cytoskeleton is made of fibers. They're kind of different in that they're a different structure chemically, but it's also fibers. It also is structural, but also nutrient traveling, force traveling. And so the cytoskeleton within the cell does the same role as fascia outside the cell. And they actually can talk to each other through these special proteins in the cell wall. So if you are using a vibrating tool, let's say you're using one of those like Theraguns or um, some sort of, you know, or, or even a roller, mm -hmm. um, that mechanical force on your fascia actually gets transmitted to the cell, inside the cell to the cytoskeleton, all the way down the cytoskeleton into the nucleus of the cell. Then the cell is saying, oh, I feel a force. I better release certain proteins. So then the cell starts to make proteins. The proteins get excreted from the cell and those collagen proteins start building up more dense fibers because obviously you've got more force there. So you need it. So Whoa. I know it's like this, this microscopic to macroscopic communication system. Bodies are so incredible. They are. I mean, moms are already incredible. We're the most powerful beings on the planet. And now to know that we have this whole other system and then it's totally okay that we didn't know about it before, because it turns out a bunch of other people didn't know about it before. Didn't know about it. No, we were looking at dead bodies. We should have been looking at things. <laughs> right. So interesting. I, I don't have a lot of experience with fascia because it is kind of new ish, but the only thing that a lot of us are familiar with is Ashley Black's fascia blaster, um, and it's sold as like a cellulite thing. Right. So one thing that we know about fascia is that it's this, um, this spider web network and mm -hmm. all of those fibers um, uh, within that fibrous network are cells. And some of those cells are um, cells that contain um, cellulite. 
So the, 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 the fat that can, is contained within cells. And um, so she advertises that um, perhaps as a way to access those cells and somehow release cellulite from those cells. I'm not sure that I can see the pathway for that um, uh, cellularly as a cellular biologist. I'm not sure that I know that pathway. However, I do know that there are all kinds of different ways to affect your fascia. Um, vibration is one. Rolling mm -hmm. is another. There's um, rolfing is, is one method that people use to affect um, fascia. Actually, also acupuncture. There's been studies oh. that have shown that acupuncture needle, needles, when inserted into the skin, the fibers, the collagen fibers actually grip the needle and pull it deeper into the skin. So you can talk to some acupuncturists and they will they will tell you their their um, experiences of of you know gently putting a needle in and having it be kind of sucked in, and then that twisting and pulling of of the fascia because it's wrapped around the needle will cause again that mechanotransduction that that movement that stimulates cellular response in the body. So there are all different uh, ways to stimulate the fascia. Okay, now I'm not going to think about my acupuncture appointments the same ever again. <laughs> Either. Fascinating though, right? Like bodies are amazing. Yeah, super amazing. So interesting. I was going to ask you, you know, if paying attention to the fascia was any, had any benefits for moms specifically, like before, during and after pregnancy, but obviously it does. <laughs> it's also related to pelvic floor health. Very, very much so. There's a whole layer of it. Um, happening down there. So how do you encourage people to, I guess, incorporate movement or techniques or ideas to what's, what's the terminology? This is so new to me. I don't even know what to ask, like stimulate the fascia, heal the fascia, stretch the fascia. What are we trying to do? I think all of those are appropriate. I think that, um, when you're, you can have um, areas of fascia that are overly dense from um, either, excuse me, immobility or um, uh, chronic, like uh, repetitive movement. Mm. And so those, um, those areas of the body can be really affected by, um, by my moving the fascia. One thing that, that I do for my husband um, he works on the computer a long time and he has a really stretched out upper thoracic spine. And so I have him do a lot of fascia work on that area because I want more dense fibers in his thoracic spine so that it can help support his, his, um, his, his back. But I don't want them to be so dense that, um, you know, it, it, creates stiffness and immobility mm -hmm. and that tacky, sticky feeling of, of having kind of compression in that area. And so I have him mobilize. I have him do exercises where um, he has to balance himself and then do swinging motions that help to kind of promote elasticity in the fascia. Rolling again is a great way to hydrate the fascia, but you can do all sorts of stuff to kind of help build the body. Wow. Wow. Rolling to hydrate the fascia. Mm -hmm. um, my lovely homeschooled children 
when I lay down on my rollers now, they're like, what are you doing? I'd be like hydrating my fascia. Absolutely. <laughs> that is amazing. And you know what? They won't grow up not knowing what this is. That's so you know? important. I, I am committed to having, I, I tell every single one of my younger clients, especially women, but actually also men, I tell them all about their pelvic floor and I tell them all about how it works. It's structural. It supports your spine. It supports your pelvis. Think about it like a Jenga. You want the table that the Jenga is sitting on to be stable so that your spine stays stable. (laughs) Yeah. I want to win Jenga when I'm 80. (laughs) And yeah, I, 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 I hope that this next generation comes to comes to the fore and comes into their own with the ability to advocate for themselves because they have such good knowledge of their own bodies because your body is the only thing that you have, that you have from the moment that you are born until Mm -hmm. the moment that you die. It's the only thing that's yours that whole time. And so you just have to know about it and you have to take care of it. Hmm. This is so good. I love the all oh, the self things, and and by us working on ourselves, having this self awareness, this this self care, this self analysis that we can do, and just working on ourselves, we are actually doing very purposeful work for ourselves because Absolutely. we're worth it, but also for the next generation, and obviously the generation after that as well. I mean, it's transformative. It's private. It's personal, it's personalized, and yet it is also something that we need to feel confident in sharing with other people who can help us with these things, Um, find relief or find strength or confidence in our bodies, find fluidity or hydration or or whatever it is we decide that our body is needing or that someone else can help us that understand that we might benefit from it just is so important this is i'm i'm just blown away by all of these things i obviously have learned so much you've seen my face the whole time like my jaw (laughs) hit the floor a couple times and thought i was going to pick it for your friend and i felt all the emotions (laughs) during this interview it's been awesome well what's one thing that mom is listening could look at in their life or in their body and really observe and think about to help them decide what area of their body could use more support movement or more attention today, because I think that applies to all of us. I think we've heard this and we know that our bodies need something. They always need something and that we can actually meet those needs. So what, what advice do you have for us? Um, I think I have, I have two bits of advice. The first thing is that movement doesn't have to come at a gym. It doesn't have to come at a particular time. You can create movement no matter what you're doing. I, sometimes I, um, I open the, the shelf underneath my, my sink when I'm doing the dishes and I just move my heel up and down and, and, you know, bounce along to the beat, you know, something, anything that helps you feel like you have happy movement that is valuable. And so you should feel empowered and strengthened and supported and applauded for finding any kind of movement you can find anywhere you are. Like if you're in the car and you're tapping your toes to the music, great. That's awesome. Keep going. Mm-hmm. Create happy movement, Greta. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that is so freaking good. 
Okay. All right. Yeah, I can do that. That doesn't feel like a chore to me. Great happy movement. What? Go you. My gosh. All right. One thing. Sorry. I'm just so blown away by that. Sure. The other thing is um, I want you to, especially new moms, be kind to your pelvis. Your pelvis is in flux. You have tons Mm. of hormones in your body. Those hormones last for a very long time. And so though that your those hormones cause your pelvis to be mobile so don't push yourself too hard know that whatever movement you make is good that you're supporting yourself don't rush it be kind to your very mobile pelvis that has just gone through a big event and understand that if you persist if you just keep doing a little bit every day you will get there it doesn't have to be this big, amazing thing. It can be a little bit every day, but just keep going. Don't give up. Be kind and don't give up. (laughs) So good. So good. Well, you walk the walk too. You don't just talk about this stuff. You're passionate about educating people and helping them. So you actually have resources available. Yeah. Tell us about those. So, um, well, I have this pelvic floor course that I've created on my website. Um, Again, it's a 35 minute course that talks about it educates women on anatomy and physiology, common pelvic floor dysfunctions, exercises you can do. And within that course, um, I use citations and I have done extensive scientific research on um, pretty much every aspect of that course. So if you have any questions at all, or if you're interested in that course, please visit my website. Um, I have Instagram. It's still pointmovement.com. So the point is like actually a, a dot, like a period. Still pointmovement.com. Um, still point movement, uh, is my Instagram. And then my website is stillpointmovement.com. Um, the other thing I'm working on in should be out hopefully by the end of this year, is um, another workshop on fascia, myofascial slings, and um, forced transmission. And that's also going to come with some exercises, both easy and hard, for you to get an idea of how um, how that kind of thing works, whether therabands and swinging kettleballs and all these kinds of things and what they actually do inside of your body. Um, yeah. And if anybody has any questions, I am so happy to help explain, um, talk about the science behind things. I mean, I just feel like whenever you understand you're, you're just a better advocate. So knowledge is power. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, Greta, this is amazing. I will link to all of these in the show notes. And when your fascia course um, becomes available, let me know because I need to know what the heck to do with these kettlebells in my house. (laughs) (laughs) This has been really incredible and so informative, but not only informative, really empowering. I learned so much. You have blown my mind multiple times, but also increased my knowledge base. And I feel much more confident. And I I don't think it was an accident that we're talking at this point in my pregnancy. But you know, I know that it's not just applicable to me. I know it's applicable to my mama listeners at any age too. And I just really appreciate all the information that you've shared with us today. And I really appreciate you. Well, thank you very much. And I am incredibly grateful for you to for this opportunity. And I also admire your strength. Well done. Good, good job, Mama. 
That's it for this episode of Elevating Motherhood. Thanks again for spending your valuable time with me today. I hope you found some insight and inspiration, or maybe a little of both. If you liked today's show, please leave a review on iTunes. I use your feedback to plan future shows and cover topics that serve you. You can also connect with me on Instagram and Facebook. Links to those accounts are in the show notes. For more information, including today's show notes, head to elevatingmotherhood.com. That's elevatingmotherhood.com. Thanks again, Mama. I appreciate you.